Broken Fingers Crew are a multidisciplinary art collective originally formed in Haifa, Israel. They currently consist of three members. Unger, now based in London, plus Tan and Deso, who live in Tel Aviv. Coming from a creative and artistic background, they spent the early years of the crew's existence throwing parties which they promoted with incredibly detailed psychedelic posters while developing their take on graffiti in the nascent national scene. It wasn't too long before they started working abroad and significant steps in their development were made in the UK, the USA and Mexico as they worked on their collective approach to painting, sculpture, printing and installation. Their subject matter has made a significant evolution over the years, from early representations of sex and death to a more politicised view of communication in their current pieces. They're currently celebrating 20 years together with the release of their first book, Broken Fingers, which dropped in September 2021 via the Belgian publisher Lanu. We were able to get Unger, Tan and Deso on a call the week of the launch. Clearly from the book, you you understand tragedy in a different way to people who haven't seen it firsthand. When you were uh, losing stuff all the time, and um, yeah, when you're uh, not that organized, you need to have this uh, in your character, otherwise you will be sad all the time. Coming from Haifa, um, well, a place that you you said is the the end of everything begins in Haifa, which um, I think is a really good quote. It's from the Tragic Mistake work from 2011. What are your feelings about your hometown? I mean, it's a pretty hard question, but what, what does it make you think about when you think back about living there? Uh, wow, there's a lot of uh, mixed feelings about it. Yeah, I think we we love it. We still love it. It's quite a very sleepy and uh, you know just just like it's like growing up in the village. You kind of love it, but you want to get away. In the, in the, you know, in the sense. Um, yeah, we love Haifa, but uh, it doesn't really change that much. So it's like something that you know and just stays in this in, on the same. The, like the same perspective that you know it um, yeah but it's a cool place I think in the book you mentioned some of your first memories were the start of the first Gulf War well that, that was uh, a time of another time of un- instability for your region so what was it like growing up around um, the possibility of, of missiles landing on your head Ooh, that was when we were really young like uh I think that was that was still in Russia. It wasn't even there, and me and Tan were, uh, you know, like five to three years old. So that's just really first memory. Um, not at, at this age, I don't remember it as something scary. It was more like something special because uh, uh, at night when there's alarm, so all, all the neighbors get together at one place. So it's like as a kid, it's cool. You get to see the other kids, and there's like uh, you put the mask. It's like Maybe the, the grown-ups made fun for us. Only a, a bit later do you realize how fucked up it is, but uh, the killing was like, yeah, it's the thing. Do you remember a point when it started to get scary, or uh, whatever conflict um, that Israel were going through at the time started to become concerning for you guys? Well, straight through the heavy shit, huh? Uh, <laughs> he, I mean, 
part of like what was yeah, it? Two thousand. Two thousand. The second Intifada. It was yeah. We were old enough to understand. So, I think since there, it's it's. Uh, I think it was the um, most hardcore. Also, uh, specifically in Haifa, there were like buses like low all the time, and we. Yeah, a lot of our we we knew a lot of people that uh, died from this uh, intifada and uh, close yeah close friend. Nevertheless, you were in the book. You explain how you I mean people were hiding and and kind of in self-imposed quarantine for a while, and then after a while you decided to to start organizing events, and and that was your way of of um, showing defiance against the situation. Yeah, what you're talking about is, is later on is, the, is in 2006 when there was the second Lebanon war. And that was different because in the Intifada it was like just buses exploding and then it was like, it, it's like a lottery. It, 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 you know every day it's going to happen, you don't know where and everyone is scared. Um, the, the, the war was more surreal because you just hear the alarm and you look at the sky and you just see rockets coming and you know, in some areas of Israel, people used to it. It happens all the time near the Gaza border and stuff. But in Haifa, it was for us the first time we like we saw it, and most of the people just left the city. Uh, but we, for us, it was just it, it, maybe it's not nice to say, but we we really liked this month. It was just like the city was empty. It was like you could, could do whatever you want, and the people who stayed, there was like this weird dystopia feeling of like yeah I remember me and Tans going like walking one night and like the few businesses that were open were so happy to see someone walking and they're like hey come here get here the free pizza here free this and uh, yeah it was also I think the first time I realized how much bullshit we get from the news because we would sit in the place like on the top of the mountain when you can see all the rockets coming from Lebanon and they were, and we would see like you know hundreds of rockets coming, and then at the end you hear the news and they say like today only three rockets arrived or something like bizarre, and I'm like wow so this is how it works they just it's not like conspiracy shit they just tell you what they want you to you know to hear. So in that context, you guys all grew up as graffiti writers. I mean, did you all start with tagging and throw ups, pieces, and this kind of background? Um, I think it it started uh, like our uh, like connection to art starts earlier. Like we grew up into doing art. Inunga uh, grew up like in a kind of hippie community. Our parents are architecture and artists, um, so we used to to draw like uh, all the time. And then we, when we got a little bit older, uh, we got to get to Europe first, like uh, to Berlin and Barcelona, and uh, we first saw like what's going on out there uh, back in like early 2000, uh, when there was almost nothing in Israel, uh, but there were maybe uh, very few people that did like tags or uh, graffiti 
and yeah, just blow our minds. We we came back to Haifa and start uh, doing ugly shit all over the town. Um, and it was quite easy, was it? Because it was no one knew what you were doing. Uh, yeah, comparing to America. Yeah, and it's uh, we call it ghost town, Haifa. When you walk there out in the night, you're alone. There's nobody in the streets. Um, and uh, we're up there because yeah, there were no one else. <laughs> why do you call it ghost? I mean, why is there no one out in the streets? It's, it's, I mean, yeah, it's it's a really sleepy place. There, uh, mostly old people, all the young people are moving uh, to Tel Aviv. Um, and it always, it, it, you said you're from Liverpool, and I think Manchester, Liverpool, it also have this kind of workers' background, right? I mean, Manchester for sure, but also Liverpool. And Haifa is like the known as the workers' town, and it used to be, even though it's the third biggest country uh, city in the country. It, it was always like a very like uh, you know a red city. People get up, they go to work in the port or whatever, and and it still has some somehow it still have this mentality. So it's the most down to earth place that I know. Like no matter what who you are and where you've been, when you come there, it's just like ah, you're, it's just, it's life. It's real life, and. Um, yeah, I think for us growing up, that was the thing. Like we, 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 it has this realness that we like, but it also can be a bit depressing because all the grown-ups that you see, they do like you know, grown-up work, and no one do like fun stuff or art or music. There was really like handful of people that we saw that were older than us that stayed in Haifa and still did something cool. So it was. It was really like important for us to like, like uh, you know, we did like a mental note to our future self, like let's not become like, uh, you know, like those adults, it's just too boring stuff. Some of the first images in the book are gig posters. You guys worked as promoters uh, as well as artists and in the, the, the book explains that the only way you could really get good bands and, and people to come to these shows was through the, the striking artwork you were creating at the time. And yeah, you got some in- incredible artists that came to your gigs. I mean, how do you remember that time? Was it was it like a really positive? Did you lose loads of money? Uh, how did it work? Uh, it was a really fun uh, time, really good era for uh, all of us. It was like uh, almost every week we used to for a party, uh, like in this uh, venue called the uh, City Hall. Um, and uh, we've been waiting for it the whole week and yeah it started from DJs from Tel Aviv that came to play and slowly we got into the scene we started to design posters for those events and for the people in Tel Aviv as well and it was exciting Uh, yeah yeah it was which is your? Um, do you have a fun, like a particularly fun memory from that time? One one artist or one night that was uh, that was really made it all worth it. Ooh! Wow! Um, I have a few. <laughs> what, what, what are yours? I want to hear those first. Um, wow! There was like the, the beginning of the dark step. Uh, 
What year was it? 2003 was like after the you know it was the second wave and then when dubstep arrived suddenly we're like part of the world movement and we had like the biggest name from the UK coming um, and it was just it was just very exciting because we felt like okay now we're part of something bigger and uh, I even remember I went to New York in 2008 and it was like maybe one one dubstep night in the whole city there was once a month and it, it didn't even arrive there properly and, and we had like a, a weekly party so the, yeah those nights were really special for us and you you had a decent amount of people that would come yeah it was lines we had to send people back it was like people coming from Tel Aviv from Jerusalem there was like a few years there was like the, the, that party to be it seems like from the very beginning you understood or you appreciated the power of the collective over the individual, which kind of separates you from a lot of graffiti writers where the tag is the most important, the crew gets a little shout out on the piece. Um, did you decide that from right from the beginning that that would be the way that you were going to work? I think it also has to do with the Haifa in a way because it's such a small scene there. So if you like... You know, if you would imagine like a graffiti scene with like a lot of beef and, and, and you know, and, and fighting each other and crossing each other on the street, you would like, it, you basically, you would not have any scene. So like meeting another writer, graffiti writer in Haifa was like, oh, you too? Fuck, we're like in the same, you know, we're like in the same place. We're in the same, we're part of the same thing. And... Uh, so I think this is a uh, growing up in Haifa probably uh, made this like collectivism strong in the in the crew, and uh, yeah, well these two were uh, they were growing up in in this like hippie commune. So I guess it's like from from their uh, childhood they have this like collectivism thing. Well, so you coming from Russia? It's like yeah, I'm coming from Soviet Union. Uh, communist. You can say a lot of stuff about it, but yeah, it had a sense in, of the uh, commune in, in, in the Soviet Russia. Yeah, yeah and by the, re by the years, we like understood more and more how much power it gives you when you have your crew behind you all the time, pushing things together, just like teach each other give each other feedbacks and uh, I don't think none of us will get to where where we are now without without the people uh, beside us it's uh, such also we will never went look, like to 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 study like uh, art or uh, like in a in a university or something and we always like help each other and uh, yeah it's, it's very powerful thing also just from the practicality of like uh, 
uh, if you're a solo artist and you've been invited somewhere to do a show or to do a mural, I mean, it's way more fun to come with your friends. And we realized it early on. It's like, wow, we can travel with our best friends. That's like, what else can you ask for? So it just, yeah, it just felt good. And we we learned, I think, with the years how to give each one has his own space so you can create and you can explore and you can do your own shit. It's also important. And you have your own name. But it's always when we come and we do something together, it is something special it comes out like something that surprises us, like uh, that you cannot do by yourself. Yeah, it's also kind of really easier to do, to get things done, you know, when you're, when you're working together. Like literally it's easier to, to manage a, like a bigger event or, a, yeah. We should also mention Kip, who has been the fourth member of Broken Fingers for, for some years. He's focusing more on, on music, I understand. Over the years, have there been other members of the, of the crew or, or unofficial members? Have you ever thought about opening up the crew to, to more people? There was, like, in the early, early years, like, really, really in the beginning, there was, like, you, there was Sedjak that was there for, in the, in the early years for a while, and there was a lot of friends that maybe not officially, you can say, but uh, that traveled with us, like, everywhere in the world and painted with us, so for us, they are crew, so, so you know, uh, most, if you see in the book, like, most of the projects, it's not only three of us or four of us, we will have like at least four, five, seven other friends involved helping us. Chapter three for me is, um, I don't want to give too much away, uh, but at the same time I would like this interview to, uh, to work as a companion piece for the book. But the chapter three is called Sleeping in Places, um, and it's a special chapter for a number of reasons. Um, but I think what's interesting is the way you talk about being on the road, um, and the the way that you would attract or, or, or friends of yours who were living at whichever city, whichever destination that you were headed to, would turn up and and you would cram as many people into the 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 room, the bed, the the bathroom as possible. Um, that must have been fun times. It sounds like a, almost like being a rock band on the on well, more like a punk band on tour. Fun and a nightmare at the same time. Don't get it wrong. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's really fun. <laughs> one of the crew, uh, one of the roadies getting sick, and then it's just becoming an incubator of uh, sickness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was quite graphic. That description. Is that? Was there any one one trip that you think opened your eyes uh, or influenced what you did more than more than any other? Probably every trip. No. Mm -hmm. Every trip we're, we're like opening our eyes on something and uh, uh, on realizing that we like it's what we're doing is like that's the that's the thing that's, that's what we want to do I guess. I think that the first trip we had together in 2010 was uh, to China. Oh yeah. Uh, it was still four of us with a hipster and. Um, yeah, it was the first time we got invite, invited to exhibit outside of Israel, and we did this uh, small tour. We went to paint in some cities, and then we went travel together. And uh, yeah, that's probably the opened the 
the chakra for us for uh, traveling and uh, since then for like 10 years um, we never really stopped until uh, the pandemic so uh, the, the night in China camping in China for me sounds like one of the worst nights sleep you may have ever had certainly sounds pretty awful from how you explain in the book um, maybe another one of those bad nights was spent in a cell in New York I'm not sure which member of the crew this affected um, but uh, yeah how, how's your relationship with, uh, with the law been over the years I mean have you you I mean, you have done illegal work, and that always has consequences. Yeah, in the book, it, first of all, the ch- chapter three, what you talk about the sleeping in places, it was um, it was really, I think, it was fun for us doing the book. It was uh, um, we 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 were thinking, should we do something a bit more personal or not? And at the end, we said, let's try to give it a shot, and we decided to write those short stories that like personal stories and it was it was fun because we never did anything like this none of us and we don't even share that much because we don't do you know we don't do so much interviews or anything so i think i hope the the thought behind it was that if someone that follow and, and like what we do and get the book then it will be kind of an opportunity to to learn a bit more and hear exactly about all those kind of fucked up stories and funny stories that happened throughout the year and yeah there was there was a lot of those kind of stories we had to choose some were like too hardcore to put in the book we couldn't do and some were uh, you know so we had to edit and um, I think if you read it you kind of get the picture of the, the vibe of the, this decade no? Is it, uh, is it safe to show your parents this book? Yeah Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They know uh, most of the things they know. Yeah, yeah. I took my ninety-six-year-old grandma to see the sex picnic show, and she loved it. She was like, she thought it was really fun. This is well. I want to get onto that a little bit later. The the change, the evolution of your work, but. The next thing I've got written down is a moment that must have made your parents really proud. This is when you guys hooked up with U2 to make two different music videos that have been seen by millions of people, literally millions of people. The first one was American Soul. That was from Czech's Notes. When was when was that from? 2015? 17, I think. 17. Blessed are the bullies. For one day they will have to stand up to themselves. Blessed are the lies, for the truth can be awkward. Close you. 
how did you end up working with this enormous band, you two? They just wrote to us. <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It sounds like a, like a, yeah. It happens really fast. Like there's an amazing story behind it, but at the end, I guess what happened is uh, you two uh, or whoever promotes the, the, their videos or the thing uh, thought of doing uh, like a like a graffiti animation stuff, and, and they probably just you know just searched the the, the web and uh, somehow they uh, ended up in uh, contacting us, and yeah, we just like jumped on the opportunity yeah. the video is insane i mean it's a lyric video let's call it a lyric video because you illustrate kind of the lyrics of, of bono in there with well all the different techniques that you associate with broken fingers from muralism to graffiti pasting um even t-shirts it's it's really quite a, a, a well a massive undertaking tell us a little bit about the process of, behind making the video so first of all uh, we're uh, apart, like uh, each one of us uh, was in a different continent at the time. Uh, me and my girlfriend were in uh, India back then, uh, Unga was in London and Tessa was in Haifa. Uh, so uh, it was pretty complicated like uh, to, to do it. Like, um, each one of us kind of open a, like a, a mini production crew, and then yeah, we had those conversation every evening or what was it morning for us, um, and it was very challenging. And uh, but we just didn't have much time. Yeah, like to ask us, uh, I think in the first trial that they needed in like. Uh, a week? Was it a week? Yeah. It was a week. It was uh, a week. Four days of shooting we had. Uh, so we didn't have much time to think. We just did, and we knew that we need to shoot like uh, I don't know, thirty thirty uh, seconds a day, and we just uh, walk up every every day, like before the sunrise, set up the first set, and the like. Um, yeah, it was super challenging, like to, to think about the production. But at the same time, we said, okay, we have this like four days of just not sleeping, not showering, basically suffering a bit. But we're gonna jump right into it, and there's we're gonna finish these four days, and and that's it. When you finish, you know, you don't have to like. It's not like you're working a year on a project. So. Uh, and I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think we have this ad attitude in most of our projects. We're just like diving in deep into the thing and uh, yeah, try to finish as much and uh, as we can in short period of time. So we gave this uh, kind of rough, sketchy feeling that has, I think, a little bit of magic that couldn't happen. If you if we would plan it like uh, ahead and we have more time to shooting and it's so it's completely mm, let's say analog everything you see it's no computer effects no nothing no 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 it's the all first one uh, it was yeah it was completely what you see it's incredible. Yeah.
Can I ask what a budget would be in a video like that? Or if you were to do it again, what you would ask for? Uh, that's two different questions. If we would do it again, we will ask for a lot, but we didn't have much budget. I don't, I, I, I mean, I it didn't cost us much because the Danny was found in India, like with uh, four random Indian people that he found that helped him glue, you know, and him and his girlfriend cut his stuff. One. And the camel. <laughs> and the camel. And uh, I was here in London with some friends, and that's what did it with, in Haifa with friends. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, it was very DIY. Um, and uh, but each place just had its own challenges. Like in, in India, there was just no spray paint. And here, you know how it is. It, it just, it's rainy, and you cannot just rent a studio. It costs so much. So you need, to, so most of the walls are illegal. And then, People still just do something on the street, but they, they, they don't believe you that it's for you too, so they, they think you're just, you know, fucking with them. Um, the first one, because it was such a short deadline, like tight deadline, we didn't have time to think. The second one was much more, uh, it was harder for us because somehow they, the, the first one came out, we said, okay, whatever comes out, and they, they really liked it. And then they were like, okay, do another one. And this one is not a lyric video, it's a proper video. And now we have a bit more time, not much for maybe two, three weeks. And suddenly we felt like, okay, well, we somehow got lucky in the first one, but how will we do it again? And we, we actually didn't want to do it almost because I was waiting for my daughter to get born. It's like every, it was already the due date. So it was like any day now. And Adam Albo, shout out to it's like we work with him we co-direct everything with him and, and so he just lost his dad it was like out of the blue and he was like in the shiva the jewish shiva so we said we're sorry we just cannot do it and then they were like so they had bono cola because they knew that no one can say it's like you know it's like something with the president you cannot say no and he was just like hey you gotta do it and uh, so we said, okay, and he was like, do whatever you want, it's important, because Trump, and this, KKK, so we said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. Did you, get, um, did you get to meet uh, Bono in person? We went to the show in, in uh, when they had a show in London, they invited us, so there in the backstage and stuff, it was, yeah, it was uh, nice to feel the IP. It, was it how you would imagine a backstage at a U2 gig to be like? And was Bono like the same sort of person as you had imagined? I heard he's quite short. Actually, in the backstage, there was the, the rest of the band, like Edge and the, and the guys, and they were very nice, but it was very, like, brief. They were, like, uh, nice, but, they, they, you know, they're before a domestic show. Uh, and then in the, sh but it was, I don't know, it was, it was just really cool to us the fact that he, you know, on the stage he thanked us and he took the time after to send us the letter, thank and call him. Like before the video, he called us, I understood he wanted to make the video, but he actually then took time after the video to call us and say thank you that we did it. So then we were like, wow, it's it, it just cool. Like he didn't have to do it. And, and as you said, it made all our uncles very, very happy. And it was like the first time that they understood what we're doing. And yeah. I mean, this is a band that's not necessarily, I'm, I'm sure probably wouldn't have been a band that you would have 
thought about bringing to Haifa in those early days. And um, did you have any doubts about working with the bands? Let's let's call them like a kind of mainstream band, like you two. Yes, I will be like I, I would say that no, because um, you know, uh, first when it's something so big and it's like Universal Records, so you think, wait, is it the right thing for us? We were not used to this world, but now I think we came to learn that it, it, it doesn't mean much at the end. It's the, the person who's on the other side that you work with, and it could be super big, but if they if they are cool and and. It, Specifically in this project, they they didn't even ask to see a sketch. They saw the first the video. The last like the first time they saw it was the finished version. You know what I mean? So this is the client you want to work with. And then some other times we co- we work with something that maybe from the outside seems very cool or underground, but it's just a pain in the ass. And and, and you work with an asshole and and you just say I don't want to do it again. Yeah. So you really have to judge it. Of, uh, opportunity for us to to have the 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 tools or the budget to try stuff that we are not necessary to do like without without Universal, for example. Um, yeah, and I think a few few things uh, like yeah, falling into a place with this like uh, the fact that they really. Um, really trust us on on like the, the artistic style, and they really didn't want to see any like sketches or anything. They just want to hear the idea and just go for it. Also, like the political thing of it, um, which for us it was a nice opportunity to like get all the like all the ideas that we had for years in, in like a like a, a socially politically charged uh, ideas. Um, yeah, I guess if it was like just the, just some like Dave Matthews band, and and they want to see like a nice uh, I don't know vibe video, we would would probably think about doing this or not. But uh, yeah, it was a nice nice experience for them. You've gone on to work with other musicians. That's not actually explained in the in the book, but I found out on the internet you work with the likes of Beck. Uh, Blink One Eighty Two, if I'm not mistaken. Which would be your dream collaboration? Uh, we need to choose one or a few. You can choose like one each. Oh, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Switch. I would say Flying Lotus. To do the album, album for him. Whatever a video, video album. Yeah. Yeah. I I would go bigger. I mean, I want to do mainstream like the Kanye West or something like this like I mean the, we all, I mean that's always the discussion because he, he doesn't like him and I doesn't like everything but I think it's, in, it's interesting for the culture what he does I would yeah, I would love to do an album cover mm-hmm. and but there's so many yeah there's so many so around that time of making these videos, this is where I see a kind of change in the direction of your work. The work in Jerusalem, the, this is also temporary, is a really good example of this because you mentioned how you have to be tactful, you have to be sensitive when, uh, especially painting somewhere like that. But I think wherever you go, you you want to, you don't want to be too, too divisive. Is that? Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's tricky. From in one hand, you want to. You want to put it out there, you know, to to say what you really think, what 
what you experience from a certain place. And in the other hand, you you paint on the streets and uh, when when it's legal, so you need permission and uh, you need a lot of time someone to approve your sketch. So you need to get through it and put your message out there without like being too uh, straightforward. Um, yeah, when when you put your painting in the gallery, you you can do whatever you want. Um, and yeah, on the streets you need to be clever uh, and put yeah put your um, message between the lines, I guess. In the press release for the book, it says that the BBC called you guys controversial. When did you cause controversy? I mean, I uh, don't know. All the time, there's people who will get annoyed. Uh, it could be because of sex or politics or whatever. Like uh, We don't give it too much uh, attention. Like, uh, I don't know, yeah. It's good for the press release, so they write it because everyone likes it. You know, but, but we don't. I don't think we we think about it too much when we do our stuff, right? Yeah, but you do look for the boundaries when when you when you paint paint on the streets. You you do something and you get reaction from the people from uh, from the streets. Sometimes your uh, your uh, piece get uh, covered or beefed or. Uh, but it's true yeah, that, that, that uh, if in the past uh, this checking the boundaries thing was uh, was maybe more about sex or about doing illegal spots that are you know in in you know hot spots and maybe in recent years it, 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 we took this more to the political side not only but because you still want to be outside of your safe safe zone. And uh, maybe because we grew up a little bit and, and, you know, understanding more about what's going on, on around us, we have sometimes this urge of, like, saying something. And before, maybe we had the fear of, like, oh, we don't want to be those political artists that, that only do this heavy stuff. We want to do fun stuff. Now, first of all, the, the challenge is, can you do something that is very political but it's still fun, A, and B, you don't have to be one thing. Like you can do something very political, uh, like a work about the, the the wall or about Gaza or about the Holocaust, and then another work that is something dumb about nothing. Um, and it's, and and once you understand this, it gives you this certain freedom. And also, your the people who follow your art get used to it, and they're like, oh, we know that we're not going to expect only one thing. Um, it's, it's just, yeah, it's very important for us all the time to keep being in this place of, like, we will keep experiments and so don't get used to just one style or one thing because, you know, we'll have to break it break it up all the time. Do you regret anything that you've painted? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah? What? Uh, just some ugly, dumb stuff, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. I think when we came to London the first time, we were a bit like shocked of how 
mainstream street art world and all the street art tools and our kind of natural reaction was like, okay, we're going to do something that is not family friendly. Mm-hmm. And But then we just did also just stupid ignorant stuff, but it, 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 it's fun still. Yeah, it was like 2014 when we did this sex technique uh, series in London. And two years after, we had our uh, solo show in uh, Rome, uh, which we call it Safe Troubles. And I think it was like... Reality uh, check, that was. Was it? Reality check? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, reality check and Safe Troubles was... The second one. The second one, okay. Yeah. 2018, mm-hmm. and I think the Safe Travels uh, exhibition was kind of uh, a great point in our uh, attitude. I think, uh, like when we used to go more and paint in the streets, so the troubles were more like uh, uh, physical. You you need to escape from the police or. Uh, or the neighbor uh, like wanna uh, hit you or things like that. And then I think when we got a little bit older, so the troubles were more like in our uh, mind, uh, like how how would you do? How how would you get away from a painting that you started? You don't know how to deal with it and. Uh, kind of experiments, some new techniques or uh, new styles. And you you guys actually opened a shop at one point selling paint. How was that experience? Uh, yeah, there were no one else in Haifa selling uh, spray cans, so uh, we had to open the, the place. Did you enjoy selling paint or did you use everything that uh, that came into the shop before anyone could buy it? Uh, it was kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, Most of it was used by us and three other friends. Actually, it's an opportunity to give a shout, big shout out to Lalo from Capsula. That so so Israel had one graffiti shop all those years, and it's called Capsula, and he closed it two weeks ago after what fifteen years or something. Yeah. So we would used to go to buy from him even before he opened the shop. He would sell it out of his own house, and then he opened the shop. And uh, and then when we started to we decided to open our shop, we worked with him, and he would, we would get spray from him and bring it to Python. So it's a really you know anyone who ever was into graffiti in Israel, you know, bought from Lalo. So he yeah, replaced Lalo. How's the graffiti scene in Israel? I mean, in terms of productions, pieces, tags, murals, trains. I mean, uh, it's pretty small uh, still. Tel Aviv is pretty dirty. Like, there's a lot of a lot of tags, a lot of ugly stuff. Not a lot of murals at all. It is covered though. Like Tel Aviv, you go and you you'll be so proud. Covered. I don't know. Actually, I'm. I was. I. I don't live there for a while now. But 
is there, there is a young generation, right, in Tel Aviv that is uh, up, very up? Kind of up, up until now, it was more about the quantity, I guess. And now it feels like it, people are kind of getting more into, yeah, style thing. But yeah, it's pretty easy because, I don't know, no one, no one's right. You can't go to jail in Israel for the feeling. It's like, it's still, yeah. I mean, you need to bomb, like, heavy, I don't know. You need to, like, I don't know, bomb, like, uh, uh, police stations to literally go to, into jail. They're just going to find you or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and you go to the state and you pen there with writers and, like, any every other writer you discover spend time for, you know, tagging or whatever, so... It's not like this at all. It does have other challenges of like a lot of people with guns and and people, you know, if you paint a train and someone thinks you're a terrorist, then you know, there's just a lot of guns. But still people do it, but it's not, it's not as developed as Europe, like all the trains. The, in the introduction to your book, um, it says that you're not really comfortable with the term street artist. Do you consider yourself graffiti artists? I mean, you don't really enjoy defining yourselves, but I don't know. Sooner or later, you have to explain what you do. We just never say, we don't use it, right? We never say, like, oh, let's go do street art. <laughs> Either we say, like, let's, let's do graffiti, and we mean, like, something illegal, or we paint a wall or a mural. Um, you like the term muralists? New muralists? I, I, we don't really define ourselves usually. I think uh, we, I think it's also part of our, our like uh, attitude or uh, or way that sometimes we do animation, sometimes we do prints, sometimes we paint uh, like oil canvas, and then we paint a mural and. Uh, I think uh, we, we, well, we prefer to leave it open. Uh, mm-hmm. We just do what what it feels like at, at the moment with the, what we have in our hands. Graffiti also is, is like we have a lot of respect for the scene as a, you know as a movement, and that's kind of what brought us into this. And also with the values, and, and it is a bit like punk rock in the fact that it's something that is like meant to stay underground and uh, we have appreciation for this but at the same time if you go get into this into this thing of like i'm part of a scene and i'm part i'm a graffiti writer then it's very easy to get stuck and it's hard because there's a lot of it's, it's weird how this thing that's supposed to be you know against the law and very free can have so so many rules uh so you have to kind of make sure you don't get into this trap, you know. Um, and I think we, when we grew up, we, we also, you all the time you look at other generations, like older generations to see. And because we didn't have those generations in Israel, whenever we travel and suddenly you meet a writer from the 90s and a writer from the 80s, and then you, you start to see and you're like, oh, this is, this is kind of nice. I, I want to do this. Uh, this. This is not, this, I don't want to end up like this. Because you have those people that kind of kept it 
true and they're like at their 50s or 40s and they're still doing the same things that they were 16 it doesn't feel organic it's all about you get you're not 16 like you get old uh, you get older and you 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 have to be synchronized with your age and it doesn't mean that you know work work you know for a the corporation or whatever you can still do cool stuff but just you know do it in the way that to the place you are in your life and that's a constant challenge i think it's true also for uh not just the graffiti scene for uh, every scene we kind of connect to like uh appreciate graphic designers we do we do use graphic design in our uh, art, but we don't call ourselves graphic designers. Uh, we do appreciate animation, and we look up to animators, and we do some animation as part of our work. But yeah. I mean, I think we kind of have our own small scene that we created. Um, or same in, in the artwork. I don't know. We we when we look on the artwork, we don't necessarily feel uh, that that's what we want to do. Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, the the book is immaculate. I mean, did you do all the design yourselves, or, or have you worked with other people on the book? The the design is by Klaus Du Klaus Du. I'm not sure about how do you pronounce the last name because it's from Denmark, so something like you. And he's he's a great uh, graphic designer. And the, the when the publisher asked us who we want to work with, we said him. He was happy to do it, and uh, it was uh, it was really a good experience. Um, it was, I think, the first time we did something like this. We usually do those stuff by ourselves, but we we knew that this time we want someone that knows what he's doing, and uh, and we wanted someone Scandinavian, and uh, yeah, it, it, it looks much better than what if you know what we could have done ourselves. And also, yeah, Lanu is published by Lanu, so also. A good chance to say thank you to Lanu and to Sara because it was a year process and she kind of she was the one that had to stop her working with us so we want to say thank you and the thing is that you know it's not that we were, we were hard but we just as we had an idea and as the book evolved because we love books so much and we are book collectors we're like let's add the zine in the middle yeah and let's change it so the zine is a little different paper and oh the cover it has to be canvas no but we need a sticker and then it just kept evolving and the budget and everything so but you know it's our first book we just, we just, we just want it to be nice collector's item absolutely and when can these collectors get hold of it I mean when when does it officially drop September 15 so I'm not sure when the podcast will be out but uh, uh, not maybe 17 yeah September 17th uh, will start and it should be at bookshops like the end of the month or right and be in Europe and then later on in uh, the States. How much is it going to cost um, people to get hold of the book? 50 quid. 50 quid seems reasonable for a book of 
uh, a, a volume of such quality. And the canvas and the sticker, come on. <laughs> okay, I saved my most difficult question for last. Why broken fingers? The thing is, legally, we cannot say. So after we finish the podcast, we will explain. Maybe in the next book, we, 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 we might, yeah, we might explain it. Brilliant. Okay, so the the book begins and ends. It's kind of bookended with a gas lamp killer poster, and one of the last images we see is the a, a cover for the gas lamp killer LP which is not cheap if you want to get hold of it now on Discogs, a collector's item in itself. Is there a song that you want to end this podcast with? The one, a tune? Yeah. Yeah, a song. We'll, we'll be happy to add the uh, Aslam Killer to the, yeah. uh, to the mix. Mm-hmm. And out. which particular track? We can choose the Nissim one. It's pretty uh, Middle Eastern. You know that tune? Perfect. Perfect.